Mindfulness Mode 501. And really what drives me more than anything, what kind of gets me up in the morning is learning something new. I mean, that would be one of my kind of core strengths is finding stuff out. Hey, welcome to Mindfulness Mode. This is Bruce Langford, your Mindfulness Mode host and Mindfulness Life Coach. Hey, do you ever wish you could be more alert and more vibrant when you wake up in the morning? I have a free guided meditation for you called Awaken with Focus. You'll have more vibrancy, you'll be more awake, you'll be more energetic. At least that's the feedback I'm getting from people who have downloaded and used this guided meditation. So stay tuned to the end and you'll hear a little reminder about it. Go to mindfulnessmode.com slash awaken with focus. Now for today's episode, sit back, relax and enjoy this interview with the wonderful Dr. Sarah Mackay. Mindful Tribe, we're talking today about brains, and not just any brains, we're talking about women's brains. And I'm so excited to tell you that I have the scientist behind this fantastic book called The The Woman's Brain Book, and the scientist is Dr. Sarah Mackay. Dr. Mackay, are you in mindfulness mode today? (laughs) Oh, I'm not sure whether I ever am, but I can try. (laughs) Well, it's so great to have you here. It really is. And and your book is is so fascinating, so insightful. And I'm very excited to talk to you about this book. But first, tell us what mindfulness means to you in your life. Oh, my goodness. This is, I mean, that's really interesting because I think this word has kind of taken on a little bit of a life of its own one of these, I hate to use buzzwords, but I do think it's taken on a bit of a kind of a life of its own. And and because it's become, it's done that, I guess lots of different people would have a different definition. Um, there would perhaps be the, the neuroscientist in me would have a different definition. For me, and it sounds a bit trite, it's about being in the moment. Honestly, it's not something I, I try too hard to think about. I'm very much, I'm quite pragmatic and down to earth. And for me, I suppose a lot of um, what keeps me grounded and what kind of keeps me happy and what keeps me focused in the present moment is just finding real joy in the little things that I do every day. Um, There have been times in my life, you know, there's various challenges and I've had to kind of learn a little bit more about how to be more mindful in everyday life. But honestly, I try not to think about it too much because I think then I end up getting myself in a real tangle. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we can easily overthink it and then it Mm. just defeats the whole purpose. I want to share a little bit about you, Sarah, with our audience. Dr. Sarah Mackay is the director of the Neuroscience Academy, which offers professional education in applied neuroscience. Sarah has written a popular science book, which I already mentioned, called The Woman's Brain Book, and the subtitle is The Neuroscience of Health, Hormones, and Happiness, and it is a terrific book, and she also is involved with an ABC Science TV show called Catalyst, and it's been running for many years I believe in Australia. She received her PhD from Oxford, but after four years of postdoc research, hung up her lab coat to launch a science communications business. 
And Sarah is originally from New Zealand, and she now calls Sydney's Northern Beaches her home. And together with her husband and her two young surfer dudes and one cocker spaniel, she lives there. And in 2020, she will take part in Homeward Bound, which is a woman in STEM leadership expedition to the Ant- to Antarctica. So that's fascinating. Mm. I can't wait to talk about that. Mm. But first, let's talk about your book. What prompted okay. you to write an entire book about <laughs> the woman's brain? And I did read about this in here, but tell us in your own yeah, words. Yeah, look, to be perfectly honest, I never really felt like I had a book in me. I've always, as you said, I'm a neuroscientist and had always been, spent many years writing and teaching and talking and presenting about, about the brain. And I was approached by a publisher who, um, you know, said, do you want to write a book? And I know many people, that's their dream but it wasn't mine because I know, I, I know what I'm like and I, and I know what it would take to write a book. Um, it would need to be very well researched and well thought out. And so when I was first asked, do you want to write a book? I was like, no, not really. Not, honestly, no, not really. But anyway, I met with this, this woman who be, since became my literary agent. She's a very charismatic woman, Jeanne Rickmans. And we were having a bit of a chat over coffee and I was kind of saying to her, look, I don't really have any good ideas. She said, forget about that. Tell me what you have ever written before that really has resonated with an audience. And I had written an article a few years earlier for the ABC. I've always various affiliations with the ABC here in Australia. I'd written an article about menopause and brain fog, that kind of fuzziness that many women experience. And it had a huge, huge response from the audience. And then Jeanne said to me, well, there's your book. And I'm like, well, I'm 40. I'm not writing a book on menopause. So then she said, oh, what about baby brain? Is that a thing? And I was kind of like, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> but I've heard about, I've heard that apparently lots of women when they're pregnant feel forgetful. I'm pretty sure there's not any evidence behind that. But as we sort of were chatting about these ideas, I realized from high school, I studied neuroscience, undergrad, master's, PhD, research. I've always been in that space, but I'd sort of spent, what, 20 odd, 25 years in the neuroscience space, but had never, and hand on heart, had never really thought about how neurobiology in my life as a woman, as a girl, owning and operating a female body and brain, how that had ever really kind of come together. Because neuroscience is a huge subject, big, broad and deep. And aspects of puberty, menstrual cycle, what happens to your brain when you're on the pill, what happens when you go through menopause, why are girls and women more likely to be diagnosed with depression and anxiety? All of these questions kind of came to me. And really what drives me more than anything, what kind of gets me up in the morning is learning something new. I mean, that would be one of my kind of core strengths is finding stuff out. I just love researching, learning. And so that was essentially how the book came about was I just wrote this long list of questions about the female lifespan and, you know, looking at each of those questions through the lens of neurobiology. And so that was kind of how the book, the book was born. And I thought it was very important to um, take a lifespan approach because I don't think we can look at any particular point in the lifespan of, a, of any human without kind of taking into account what has kind of come before that. And interestingly, the, the contract of the book came through November 2016 on the day Donald Trump was elected. And so that meant I was then writing this book during 2017 when, you know, kind of the world got more woke and suddenly I thought I was writing a book about puberty and 
periods and the pill. And people started asking me very sophisticated questions and also kind of dumb questions about <laughs> males versus female brains. And, and, and there was this whole added dimension of kind of feminist literature I had to get on top of as well. So in many ways it was a challenge but it was a brilliant. So, and then that's kind of, I guess, how the how the book kind of came about. Well, it's very interesting. I am recalling a section where you talk about why women outlive men, mm. and I'm not sure that it's totally because of the brain. But you tell us. Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, we're talking about averages, and when we talk about statistics like that, we, we're talking about large population averages. And I think it's always really important for people to realise when we talk about research we always want to turn it into me search. So how does that statistic relate to me? And then, you know, am I an outlier? We we might know someone who's an outlier. My dad outlived my mum. Broadly speaking, women live longer than men. And there's lots of reasons for, lots and lots of reasons for that. Unfortunately, in those extra sort of three, four, five years of life women have, we're not necessarily massively healthy. What we tend to see is men kind of go through life and then they kind of just die quite suddenly. Whereas women will go through life and then those extra years, not necessarily living in the best health. It would be wonderful if our health span matched our lifespan. Now, there's that, that, so there's this gender gap. So what is that caused by? Is it caused, and, and, and remembering when we're looking at people right now who are, say, still alive in their 70s, 80s and 90s, we're looking at people that were born kind of, the 20s, 30s and 40s, 1920s, 30s and 40s. And men and women had quite different lives back then. Men were going to war. Women weren't as well educated. They were staying at home, having lots of babies. Men were maybe working in very, very stressful jobs, a lot of physical labor. So there's a lot of early life stress that men are carrying through. And we sort of started to see that gender gap widen based on men's lifestyles, especially back in the 70s and 80s with things like heart disease. Just, you know, people didn't know about healthy diets and not smoking. Now, as some of those health messages have come through, we start to see the gender gap narrowing again. There's lots of these kinds of factors. Women are also, we're kind of taught and we're socialised to talk about our experiences and we're far more likely to, for example, go to the doctor if we're not feeling very well. You know, men might not have that same tendency that women do. So we may get diagnosed earlier and therefore treated earlier for some diseases. So there's multitudes of kind of biological and sociological factors which kind of lead to that gender gap. I think the, the problem is, are we getting, uh, you know, is, our, is our, that, that increased lifespan kind of worth it for women if we're not spending those years healthy? What are some of the biggest myths about the woman's brain? Oh my goodness, there are, <laughs> <laughs> there are so many. I guess when I went into writing this book, I very much went in thinking this was going to be a book about biology, that the loudest voice in the crowd when we talk about women's brains would be hormones. And it was really interesting because, you know, there's a lot of um, kind of life transitions. We go through puberty, for example, pregnancy, menopause, where a lot of changes take place and a lot of them are triggered by hormones. And we tend to, and often that opens up a kind of a window of vulnerability in lots of ways. And we have a tendency to assume that hormones are the loudest voice in the crowd. When young kids, you know, entering puberty and they start to become a bit more volatile and moody and they're transitioning from childhood to adulthood, moving from their family to their friends, moving from primary school to high school, we we have this real tendency to blame hormones, especially in girls. She's moody, it must be hormones. Similarly, 
during pregnancy, women, you know, maybe becoming forgetful, perhaps they're not sleeping very well. And so again, we blame hormones. There were many, many studies I looked at in the book. PMS is another classic one, women becoming moody and grumpy and angry in that week before their periods. Again, hormones. But when you start to look very carefully at the literature, it turns out that there's almost always a lot of other things going on. Puberty is perhaps one great example to look at. We might look at a little girl who enters puberty earlier than her friends. Now, what happens when you go through puberty? Your body changes. That little a girl who goes through puberty earlier than her friends is far more vulnerable to developing depression and other mood disorders than a little girl who goes through puberty later than her friends. But if you look at a little boy who enters puberty, perhaps earlier than his friends, what happens when a boy enters puberty? Right, raises and gets taller, hairier, bigger, musclier, and he kind of rises in social status in right. his friend group. He's then protected mm-hmm. against developing mood disorders compared to that little guy. And everyone remembers the little guy at school who developed much later than his friends. He's more vulnerable. So there we've got these four children have all entered puberty experiencing hormones for the same time, they have a very different experience depending on their social group. And I saw that time and time again, PMS is another example, very careful studies that have been done looking at at women's experiences of emotions in that week before they get their period that don't prime women by saying we're studying PMS, we're just interested in mood and daily life. The far more significant um, determinant of mood was social support whether or not women felt socially connected and socially supported. Hormones didn't really play much of a role at all in the majority of women. So I saw that time and time again through the book. We have a tendency to default when we're talking about women's brains and emotions to thinking it's all about hormones. But what ended up coming out when I was writing this book was that social connections and the outside, you know, our interactions with other people are a far more powerful determinant. And I think that's probably not even a myth to bust because I really don't think people take that approach when they're thinking about what, what, what kind of influences who we are. We have this real tendency these days, I think it's a bit of this fault of the self-help phenomenon, we're always looking inward for the solutions to our problems. We think everything is coming from inside. We need to be the solution to everything. We need to search for the answers in here when the answers are actually connections with other people that is far and away the biggest determinant of health the biggest determinant of brain health the biggest determinant of how we think and feel are other people and that I guess was a surprise when I was writing the book and is now kind of a bit of a soapbox that I'm standing on I think it's a really important message to put out there and you use the phrase social prescription yeah which is interesting Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's not mine. I've, I've taken that from um, a, a researcher. Actually, I met him when I was filming my TV show. Um, there's a couple of researchers here in the University of Queensland. And Alex Haslam was a scientist that I met and his wife, Catherine, when we were filming the show. And he coined, he uses this term of social prescription. Because we know we have these really amazing statistics that, that loneliness has the same impact on our health as smoking cigarettes. You ask anyone what do you think is the most important determinant of physical health or brain health or mental health? People will always come up with things like diet, you know, exercise, stressful events, etc. By far and away, the biggest, the greatest vulnerabilities and then the greatest opportunities, I think, are around social connection. So how well loved, supported, connected someone is, is a far greater determinant of health 
than most other things. What's the most profound thing you learned from writing this book? The most profound? Oh, there were so many things. I met some very profound people and there were some very profound stories. Look, I think my favorite, the piece of research which sort of made me go, wow, the most was taking a look at what happens to women's brains when we go through pregnancy. Because again, we have this tendency to blame hormones and think, oh, I've got baby brain. Yet at the same time, women in 2019 is well, pregnant, I should be able to carry on working and mm-hmm. I want maternity leave and all of that. And, and at the same time, we're also trying to tell people that our brains don't work. So I think we're de- telling some damaging stories to ourselves, which we really need to shift because the research doesn't support baby brain that we have experienced cognitive decline during, during pregnancy. If we look to the animal kingdom, we don't read books on what to expect when they're expecting. We see that the levels of hormones that we experience during pregnancy cause cognitive enhancement. But the most interesting study was looking at how the structure of women's brains changed during their first pregnancies. This wonderful study came out when I was writing the book and it's the MRI scans, which are kind of like photos of the structure of your brain mm-hmm. or other organs in your body, were done before a group of women became pregnant and then immediately after they had the baby because you don't want to do an MRI when she's pregnant. And the exact same region and all of the women's brains changed structure. And this, the change was so significant, they kind of fed all the data into a kind of an AI machine, an AI piece of software and it was able to determine with 100% accuracy if the woman had had a baby or not. Now the part of the woman's brains that changed was the part of the brain involved with empathy, with social cognition and theory of mind. So the ability that we have to be able to understand what someone else is thinking and someone else is feeling. So it's almost like pregnancy And all of those hormones and various changes we undergo, of course, they prepare our bodies. They allow us to carry the baby and give birth to the baby. And maybe even if, you know, you choose to nurture that baby after it's born with your body, but it prepares your brain for motherhood, being able to interact with your baby, see how your baby's thinking and feeling, and also encourage that, you know, that village. We always talk about women have just had babies. We need this village, village of support and to interact with the other people around us that we need. Of course, it's kind of like nature's shortcut to that. Mother Nature's given us this shortcut that doesn't necessarily mean every birth mother has this this wonderful empathy, nor does it mean that a non-birth mother or father or any other loving, caring parent or carer can't learn those skills. But it does seem to, you know, hopefully ensure that there's a bit of biological shortcut there for mothers. So I think that's really, again, and that really surprised me, but it kind of was another piece in this puzzle where I was like thinking, oh, hormones are the main voice in the brain. And in this case, the hormones of pregnancy sculpted the brain, but it was the social brain that it sculpted. So once again, it was that nice piece in the puzzle, the social prescription, I suppose. I'm interested in having you talk about the adolescent brain and how the adolescent brain is different compared to a girl, compared to a boy. Well, look, I mean, I guess that's when we sort of start to see hormones really, the kind of the hormones of puberty from a girl's ovaries or a boy's testes do sort of start to trigger these changes that we see occurring in the brain during adolescence. And we didn't really... This is a pretty new field of neuroscience research. It's really only kind of been in the last 10 or 15 years that we've understood 
that the brain develops through childhood and it continues to change and sculpt all the way through adolescence and through to kind of our mid-20s. You'd hope that's when you've kind of reached adulthood and when your brain is in its adult sort of structure. When we go through our teenage years, we see what we call these critical periods of brain development where the brain absolutely requires particular experiences in order to kind of guide its wiring and to guide its development. Now, the main difference that we would sort of start to see here, girls' brains on average start to develop a year or two before boys' brains do. But that's simply because girls tend to enter puberty a year or two before boys anyway. But if boys eventually catch up, if we were to talk about differences, and I think it's really important to ask the question, how different are the differences and what is the specific difference? The main differences we start seeing between male and female brains at this point are around parts of the brain involved with reproduction. So girls have a region in the brain that is involved with controlling ovulation. Boys don't ovulate, they don't have ovaries. So of course that brain circuitry doesn't exist. It does sort of something else. So that's really the main, the main difference. What we see is the parts of the brain, particularly the frontal parts of our brain involved in again, social learning, um, uh, social cognition and interaction, um, and especially emotional regulation, the ability to be able to kind of plan and judge and make wise decisions. They're going through this exquisite period of development where we need the right experiences to guide the development. So we call this experience-dependent plasticity. And I don't think what we realise is we, we understand that concept, you know, children learn language you know, they've got to learn language, be spoken to before the age of two to be able to develop language appropriately. But teenagers have these periods of development as well. They need the right kinds of social interactions to develop social cognition and empathy. They need the right kinds of, you know, they're primed to learn how to regulate their emotions. They're primed to learn how to make good, wise decisions. And also the parts of their brain are involved in very, very complex, higher order functions. And it's kind of quite a nice coincidence. They're at high school, secondary school, right at this point in time, you know, so they're learning calculus and they're learning history and geography and their brains are primed to learn by experience. So it's quite useful that that's when they're in formal education still. So that's when we sort of start to see these really interesting changes taking place and kind of setting, setting these brains up for adulthood. And it's such an amazing opportunity to, to kind of provide teenagers with the right kinds of experiences to guide brain development during this time in much the same way we would have this real tendency to focus on giving you know babies and young children the right kinds of learning experiences to kind of set them up for life teenagers are really no different so what effect does exercise have on on the brain Mm -hmm. and what effect does the brain have on exercise yeah that's a really great question and i'm often asked you know what's what is the best exercise i can do for my brain as if often people might be asking that because I think maybe if I sit down at a computer and I do some kind of online brain training, that might be really good exercise. And that's probably the exact opposite of what you should be doing. And I wouldn't <laughs> recommend do that. If you're still gainfully employed and do things like make podcasts or listen to them or read books, you're doing fine there. But our brains evolved when we were on foot, when we were moving through the world, when we were hunting and gathering. And, and they really evolved to enable us to navigate and, and understand this really complex world around us and to interact, of course, with the other people we were, we were hunting and gathering with. So a brain that evolves on foot probably works best when it's on foot, when it's being moved through the world. So just moving through the natural world 
You don't need to be going to the gym and doing CrossFit, but you do need to be moving. And that really is using your brain for what it evolved to do. So, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan. I, I, I think, again, there's a real tendency we have right now to focus inward looking for the solutions for our problems. And I've talked about the social prescription, but I think we really need to understand that our human nature evolved as part of nature. Um, we evolved on a planet with a light-dark cycle. You know, we evolved in the forests and in the savannas and in the mountains and by the seas and the oceans, and we've lost connection with that. Not only is, you know, Mother Nature kind of dying out, we're, we're losing that connection. So I think moving your body through nature, if you're lucky enough to live somewhere where there's a bit of green, and I, I, I certainly do where I live, that's one of the best things that we can do. That is the best exercise to do is move through nature. Yeah, and it feels amazing to get out into nature. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's yeah, that's our home. That's yeah, you know, where we where we're meant to be. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you left a successful career to do what you're doing, and really, you have an online business now. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I um, I like to think I left a, a successful career in academia because I wanted to kind of be the one in charge of opening the doors. Academia was, I love being in a university environment, but there's a lot of other people making decisions, and I'm quite entrepreneurial and have a lot, you know, like have a kind of agency and I'm quite motivated. So, running my own business is like perfect for me. Um, so, I run an online professional development program in, in applied neuroscience and brain health. So, over 12 weeks with a few little gaps just to give everyone a bit of RR, um, we explore. We've take a look at like really basic neuroscience, brain development, how does the brain think, how does the brain feel, how is the brain motivated, what is this word neuroplasticity and what does it really mean, take a look at mind-body connection, ageing, and then we take a look at kind of the basic fundamentals of health, and, you know, nutrition, exercise, social connection, intellectual engagement, all of these types of things. Um, and it's really designed for people Broadly, the, the umbrella term I use for them is people in the helping professions. So therapists, psychologists, um, corporate business life coaches, people working in allied health who are really interested in all things brain and neuroscience and you know what can we kind of take from the research and apply in a really useful way. So we take a bit of, bit of a look at neuroscience theory, but then we, we apply it and we use it in practice. How can we be very practical and applied with, with what we do? And so how, I teach that as an, an, as an online program a couple of times a year. How can we learn more about this? How can we connect with you online? Yeah, sure. So the website for the, the Neuroscience Academy is called theneuroacademy.com. Um, and you can go on there and you can get, you know, an overview of the curriculum and how the learning works and, you know, your, your, your accreditation hours, et cetera, et cetera. We've had over a thousand people from all over the world go through the program in the last couple of years. So there's a, an amazing alumni network of very smart, wise people who are really interested in all things brain in there. Um, so people can learn about the, the online program there, theneuroacademy.com. Right. So go to the neuroacademy.com and check out more about what's happening. This is awesome. What have you learned from your children about mindfulness and about the brain? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, I think that's, you know, one of the biggest challenges for me, particularly when they were young, because they're 10 and 11 now, two boys, um, particularly when they were young, it was, gosh, it was tough. And I think 
mother, learning to become a mother, motherhood is a real process, like adolescence, you know. Motherhood is this process of learning and um, I, I, I really struggled in the early years with who I was, loved them, they were great kids. Who I was becoming was a real, real struggle um, and I had a lot of issues to, to, to kind of overcome with, with that. And it really, I, I actually did develop, did, did develop a, a bit of a mindfulness practice during that time to help quell the thoughts of you're not a good mother, you know, how are you, how are you coping with this? And it really did teach me watching them be naturally mindful and playful and have fun. I think now as they're a bit older, I kind of, you know, it's so cool to watch them develop into these two unique, amazing people. Um, and, and, I, and there's now, I suppose, you're less kind of intimately involved every aspect of their lives and I, there's just such joy from watching them become the people who they are and just even even watching that and letting them become the people who they are keeping their nest lined for them when they need me um I find that is such a special a special thing all those hard years of hard work early on are kind of paying off so that's really nice but um I think it's been, you know, they give you the highest of highs and the lowest of the lows. And I've learned so much about my emotional responses. Um, big, the biggest learning curve I think you could ever go through, apart from perhaps owning your own business is, is, is parenthood and, those, and, and learning about who you are and how you respond and perhaps how to respond more mindfully. Um, you, don't want to, you don't want to stuff them up, do you? <laughs> no, no, you don't want to do that. That's for sure. Well, as yeah. we move forward in the interview, Sarah, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. Oh, so gosh, just, okay. Yeah, cool. so just 30 second answers are perfect. Here's the first one. Who is one person who has inspired mindfulness in your life? It's not a person. It's my dog. <laughs> okay, that's good. I get that Honestly, totally. You know, I just think that, the, that, you know, they're not busy overthinking they just be and I, I my dog's amazing but a bit annoying but it, you know he's totally in the moment and if we could only do that would probably be a wee bit happier I agree what kind of dog do you have I've got a cocker spaniel an English cocker spaniel called Jasper ah uh, Jasper yeah. yeah I totally get that Sarah I really do yeah. how has mindfulness affected your emotions you've talked a little bit about this already yeah I suppose it's it's given me the ability to step back from them and not be consumed by them, but to step back and realize they are not me. And I can be, you know, I have complete, you know, kind of control over them. I can, and, I, and you, you know, I can practice learning new emotions and new situations. It's just given me the ability to put a bit of space between me and them. And, and I think that's just such a fundamental life skill. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness. It probably isn't as much as it should be, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> It probably should be more than what it is. Let's just leave it mm -hmm. at that. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, if you could recommend a book related to mindfulness other than this fabulous book, The Woman's Brain Book, oh, what would it be? Far out. That's, I read so many books. I'm just like literally looking. You know what? My favorite book on neuroscience, and I don't know whether it's really about mindfulness, is still, I don't even have it here, is still, you know, it's still the classic, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by Oliver Sacks. I mean, reading for me is being mindful. And I think that, I mean, this book really kind of put me on my path to, you know, neuroscience. And I think it doesn't teach mindfulness, but it gives you some interesting insights into the human condition and human nature um, and makes you think, makes you feel. So 
that would be my recommendation. Yeah, and what an interesting uh, book title it is, yeah. The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. <laughs> yeah, yes, strange neurological condition that poor man had. Yes, yes, absolutely. It was very sad. Yeah, really. Uh, but my next question is this, are there any apps at all that you use or that you would recommend that can help with mindfulness? Well, I'm a big proponent, as I said, rather than kind of looking inward and spending, and I struggle, as many people do, with that kind of inward looking, being being calm and quiet, I would rather be out moving through nature. Honestly, the, besides, um, you know, a map to find your way through, I honestly really love my pedometer because it kind of gives me, you know, a, that bit of a push every day. It's probably not what you're expecting, but I... You know, I, I'm not a massive proponent of walking 10,000 steps a day, but I'm a huge proponent of being out in nature. And I find that my pedometer just gives me a bit of a, a reminder, or oh, you, you probably haven't been out as much today as you could be, so get out and, and go forth and walk. And for me, that that's potentially more useful than anything. Yeah, well, I agree. I feel that, you know, I can always get more exercise, that's for sure. Mm. Yeah, so. yeah. Good recommendation. Well, it's really been fantastic to have you on the show. I absolutely appreciate what you do, and I appreciate your book. Well, thank you very much. So theneuroacademy.com is where we find you. So yeah, Yeah. so good to have you here, and all the best with all of the projects that you have ongoing. Oh, thank you very much. Okay. (laughs) It keeps me busy and happy, so I appreciate it very much. And thank you so much for the for the invitation to chat. It's been an honor. My pleasure. My pleasure. Bye now. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash whatever episode number you like. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, so many places you can hear Mindfulness Mode. So hit subscribe and share because that truly helps our show. And remember what I mentioned at the top of the show, Awaken with Focus a 12-minute meditation just for you, recorded by me. You can be alert, focused after waking. That's what it's all about. Feel invigorated, fresh, and dynamic. Let your vibrancy feed those around you. Download this meditation to help you get going in the morning at mindfulnessmode.com slash awakenwithfocus. So remember, subscribing and sharing helps keep mindfulness mode on the air. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.